Hello, this is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Reeducation. Today's show is about disinformation, and our guest is Christine Rosen, a senior writer at Commentary Magazine. Earlier in April, the Atlantic Magazine and the University of Chicago held a three-day conference on disinformation. If you've read the elite media in the last six years, then you would know that disinformation is a serious problem these days. The gatekeepers, the professional journalists, the academics, the government bureaucrats, are now widely disdained. Millions of Americans no longer believe them. So they turn to hucksters, conspiracy theorists, and even foreign propaganda to tell them what is true. Our ability to self-govern is now in peril, the anti-disinformation industry tells us, because millions of Americans can't even agree on reality. How can you persuade someone who sincerely believes there is a pedophile cult that secretly runs the government, or that the 2020 presidential election was stolen? If only the plebes would listen to their betters, they might not be so confused. Now that is a bit of a caricature. But to be fair, there's some truth to this broader critique. The changes wrought to our society, not to mention our own minds, by social media, smartphones, and the internet, are monumental. Cranks have found large audiences. Lies have been amplified. Conspiracy theorists have built online communities that reinforce their elaborate unreality. This development has had real-world consequences. Long before the rise of Donald Trump and the COVID pandemic, Anti-vaxxers were able to organize online and create their own alternative narratives about life-saving vaccines. A lunatic with a gun in 2016 stormed the Comet Pizzeria because he believed, based on what he read on social media, that the restaurant concealed a pedophile ring. On January 6, 2021, hundreds of Americans rioted at Congress in a delusional effort to stop the constitutional certification of the election. At the same time, there have been closed loops of unreality peddled by the gatekeepers in recent years as well. An edited viral video of high school student Nick Sandman appeared to show him mocking a Native American activist on the National Mall. We are hearing from a Native American elder and Vietnam War veteran speaking to CNN after a disturbing viral video shows a group of teens harassing and mocking him in the nation's capital. And this was on Friday on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial when he saw a clash erupting between a group of teenage students and four African-American young men preaching about the Bible and oppression. Well, then Phillips describes the tense moments now being replayed over and over again online when a young man got right in his face. We are hearing now from the Catholic school teenager who was wearing that MAGA hat caught on viral video in a bizarre stare down with a Native American elder. Some students harassing an older Native American man, a Vietnam vet, in the midst of a special ceremony. Uh -huh. The kid, Nick Sandman, he doesn't seem to be afraid, but he did make a choice, and that was to make it into a standoff. That was not a good choice. It prompted a wave of condemnation from Twitter's blue checks, in part because he was wearing a red MAGA hat as he appeared to smirk. But that video was a piece of misinformation. The real story was that the Native American had confronted Sandman and his classmates as another group off-camera hurled insults and attempted to provoke a fight. There was the opposition research paid for by Democrats in 2016 that alleged the Trump campaign had conspired with Russia's efforts to sow discord for the election that year. 
we are now learning the full extent to which this dossier itself was a kind of disinformation, peddled to reporters as a window into the FBI's own investigation, only to be exposed later on as thin rumor and falsehood. The gatekeepers told us that Hunter Biden's laptop was Russian disinformation, and Twitter and Facebook moved to throttle the ability of users to share a New York Post story that first reported on that laptop. Today, many of the same outlets that insisted the Hunter laptop was fake now concede it's real. Indeed, there is a Justice Department investigation into the president's son that has relied in part on this laptop for the probe. Elite disinformation also has real-world consequences. Trump began his presidency with the press and cable news covering the prospect of collusion with Russia as a scandal worthy of Watergate. In the first year of Trump's presidency, the Democratic opposition research dossier was amplified. Members of Congress read its charges into the official record. Rachel Maddow returned to it over and again for her nightly segments on Russia's infiltration of the Trump administration. It's Peter Strzok. The lead investigator at the FBI, who opened the FBI's crossfire hurricane investigation into the Russian influence operation against the 2016 U.S. presidential election, specifically the alleged ties between Trump and his campaign and that Russian operation. That work included chasing down the explosive allegations that were made against Trump and his campaign in a, a dossier of raw intelligence that was compiled by British ex-spy Christopher Steele and ultimately passed on to the FBI. Is the operation that Russia started during the campaign, is it over or are they still running it? Are we still in this now? Even after a special counsel cleared the president and his campaign of charges of conspiracy, the loudest voices forwarding this narrative claimed they were vindicated. Nick Sandman was doxxed by an online mob and nearly expelled from his high school. Many elites, and especially the Democratic Party, blame the social media companies. In turn, these companies that once wrapped themselves in the principle of free speech are now enthusiastic censors, patrolling their platforms for disinformation and weeding out the bad thing. And if they are too slow... There are elected Democrats helpfully introducing legislation to keep them in line. You introduced um, the bill that you talked about today that would punish social media companies like Facebook and Twitter for having health misinformation on their platforms. And I'm going to ask you if, if I were to say that there are only two sexes, male and female, would that be considered misinformation that you think should be banned uh, speech on social media platforms? I'm not going to get into what misinformation. First of all, I think the bill you're talking about is different than the one we've mostly been talking about. So I want to make that clear. We've been talking about the competition bill, um, but there is another bill that I have on vaccine misinformation. It is that specific. Disinformation is often in the eye of the beholder. At the end of this month's conference, Atlantic editor Jeffrey Goldberg quipped, I think... One darkly humorous but inevitable uh, measurement of our success is that um, our disinformation conference has been the subject of disinformation campaigns on social media already. Uh, so, yeah. <laughs> Congratulate yourselves for that. Uh, that, that that's, uh, we'll study that at next year's disinformation. Uh, okay. Now, he was referring to a set of questions from the staff of the Chicago Thinker, small student publication at the university. Students at the conference asked panelists about what I've been talking about, 
elite disinformation, Russiagate, Hunter Biden, etc. And the responses were instructive. My question is for Ms. Applebaum. Um, so in 2020, you wrote, those who live outside the Fox News bubble do not, of course, need to learn any of the stuff about Hunter Biden, referring to his laptop, of course. Uh, a poll later after that found that if voters knew about the content of the laptop, 16% of Joe Biden voters would have acted differently. Now, of course, we know a few weeks ago, the New York Times confirmed that the content is real. Do you think the media acted inappropriately when they instantly dismissed uh, Hunter Biden's laptop as Russian disinformation? And what can we learn from that in ensuring that what we label as disinformation is truly disinformation and not reality? I, my, my problem with Hunter Biden's laptop is, I think, totally irrelevant. I mean, it's not whether it's disinformation or... I mean, I don't think the Hunter Biden's um, business relationships have anything to do with who should be president of the United States. So... I didn't find I don't find it to be interesting. I mean that that would be my problem with the, that as a as a major news story. Now the Chicago reader is not infallible. Their assumptions should be questions. Their conclusions should be debated. But how are these questions examples of disinformation? It reveals a problem with the term itself. It's a concept with a troubled past. Consider the definition of disinformation from the Great Soviet Encyclopedia in 1952. Dissemination of false reports intended to mislead public opinion. Sound familiar? This was something the Western press did all the time, according to the Soviets, and the USSR's regime of censorship and propaganda was an effort to protect citizens from the lies that capitalists were so eager to spread. None of this is to say that America is now a gulag state. It's not. But the theory that bad actors are seeking to pollute our information ecosystem suffers from a similar hubris as the one that blinded the ideologues and apparats of the evil empire. It starts with a flawed view of human nature. According to the anti-disinformation industry, a mind is like an empty vessel that can be filled with truth or lies in a same way that many advertisers see consumers. Citizens in this regard are like children. So when a falsehood is shared on Facebook or tweeted on Twitter, the unenlightened American will eventually believe it. To stop the spread of bad information, its spreaders must be quarantined with labels. Its articles must be checked for facts. Or in the worst case, the spreader must be deplatformed altogether. But is that really true? Do people believe everything they read on Facebook or Twitter? Of course not. It's a far more difficult problem than just changing the inputs of social media. The opinions of Americans are shaped by many factors. Just because there are more options today for how one consumes the news does not mean that the consumer is incapable of evaluating the information themselves. The second problem is epistemological. An important way we know something is true is by testing it against counter-arguments. This requires a combination of confidence and humility. This is why courts rely on adversarial proceedings. The prosecutor makes its case and the defense counsel counters. It's also why no one is seeking to deplatform the movement of cranks and oddballs who insist the earth is flat. We don't need to silence heretics to know a proposition is true. The opposite isn't yet is the case. The fact that heretics and cranks can challenge a proposition freely is an indication that it can withstand scrutiny. 
A third problem is the temptation to call politically inconvenient facts and opinions disinformation in order to prevent other minds from succumbing to it. This short-circuits political discourse in a democracy and exacerbates the problem the anti-disinformation crowd seeks to solve. Consider the Washington Free Beacon's reporting last month on a Biden administration grant to distribute safe drug kits to addicts. New conspiracy theory hyped, pushed on Fox News, running with the false claim from a conservative website that fact checkers debunked as a myth. It is President Biden handing out free crack pipes. What this federal funding is focused on is giving money to harm reduction organizations that are giving public health instruments to folks in communities. Senator Blackburn vowed to block a bill falsely claiming it included money that would be provided to provide crack pipes to drug addicts. After the story went viral, White House spokeswoman Jen Psaki accused the beacon of, you guessed it, spreading misinformation. Jen, two topics on one. Back on the HHS issue and pipes, you know misinformation has a terrible ripple effect. What is this administration doing? Because this has permeated a lot of corridors that um, people are taking this in. Are you or the administration or HHS planning on doing something beyond the statement to let people know that this is misinformation? Yeah, that's... a really important point because I think there's been a lot of misinformation about particularly this issue and um, and it is really clouded over what is a hugely important issue in this country, which is a fight against the opioid epidemic and the need to have uh, bipartisan uh, approaches that are going to help communities that are impacted address it. Uh, but yes, we will certainly be building out our efforts to effectively communicate uh, that um, we are not um, that that what what is in a safe smoking kit, what is not in a smoking ki- safe so- smoking kit, and what we are effectively trying to do with our harm reduction program. So what exactly happened here? When you cut through the dross, Saki's primary complaint with the story was that a spokesman for the Department of Health and Human Services did not say specifically that crack pipes would be included in the safe smoking kits its grant program was funding. The reporter Patrick Hoff had contacted the spokesman and asked about the kits and whether they would be for smoking crack. And the spokesman said yes, plus any illicit drugs. Considering that safe smoking kits have included the pipes before, Hoff took that as a yes and reported the story. Two days after the story was reported, the Biden administration insisted that their smoking kits would never include pipes. In the old days, Journalists would see this for what it is, an attempt to spin a bad news cycle by focusing on a nitpick. The substance of the story held up. The Biden administration does have a $30 million grant program to distribute smoking kits and needles to drug users. That's news. So one might expect news reporters to cover it and fact checkers to hold the administration to account. Instead, Many reporters decided to cover the Beacon's alleged misinformation. Headlines declaring that the Beacon story was false or a lie spread online. The majority of the media coverage decided that the real story was the White House damage control. The spin was the news, and the news was a lie. And yet even some White House allies saw through the spin. The Drug Policy Alliance, 
a group that advocates for harm reduction programs that would be eligible for the Biden administration grants, expressed concern that the kits would no longer include crack pipes. Would no longer include crack pipes. No longer, meaning they once did. And now don't because of political pressure. And this is the wider problem. When the gatekeepers of journalism, science, and government are more concerned with preventing you from hearing heresies than persuading you of what is true, they end up promoting falsehood in the name of truth. They discredit the very institutions that need to earn the trust of the people. A better approach to the problem of disinformation is sunlight. Social media companies should continue to identify foreign actors on their platforms. They should continue to root out fake online personas. But no social media platform can or should promise to never moderate content. All kinds of speech online, whether it's personal information for private citizens or calls to violence against a minority group or individual, should be banned. The challenge is going to be partially that you know, ISIS did not have a domestic constituency in the United States Congress, but there is over half of the Republicans in Congress voted to overturn the election. Um, and there will be a continual political pressure on the, yeah. the companies to not take it seriously. So I think first, you mm. have to focus on those violent extremists and those companies have to be brave in that way. And second, we have to turn down the capability of these conservative influencers to reach these huge audiences. There are are people on YouTube, for example, that have a larger daytime, a larger audience than daytime CNN, and they are extremely radical and pushing extremely uh, radical views. And so it's up to the Facebooks and YouTubes in particular to think about whether or not they want to be effectively cable networks for disinformation. And then we're going to have to figure out the OANN and Newsmax problem. You know that these companies have freedom of speech, but I'm not sure we need Verizon, AT&T, Comcast and such to be bringing them into tens of millions of homes. But when these bans extend to legitimate debate, such as the origin of COVID-19 or an embarrassing laptop of material that belonged to the president's son, the fight against disinformation is just another kind of censorship. As the longest-running magazine in the world, The Spectator eschews identity politics in favor of intelligent conversation and thought. From the war in Ukraine to the ideological war in the classroom, from the rise of inflation to the rise of cancel culture, The Spectator has been dedicated to stimulating reporting and analysis since 1828. The U.S. edition of The Spectator has just newly come ashore and is bringing the high-quality writing and analysis to U.S. audiences for the first time. The Spectator also covers the best in books, travel, food, wine, and much, much more. We have a special offer for listeners of The Reeducation with Eli Lake. Sign up today and you'll receive three free months of the print magazine and full digital access. Plus, they're going to send you a free Spectator hat. Just go to the spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and use offer code LAKE. I just want to say, I've been reading The Spectator for years. They have some of my favorite writers, everyone from Douglas Murray, Toby Young, Christopher Buckley, and Julie Bindel, who's terrific. So I can't say enough about it, and I would recommend the listeners to this podcast to give it a whirl. The Spectator is less political party and a more cocktail party. And whether you lean left or right, you are guaranteed to be entertained 
and enlightened from cover to cover. And that's really a big part of the theme of our show here at The Reeducation, is to say that we are interested in debate, we're interested in testing assumptions, and we're interested in hearing a variety of viewpoints, and not just simply reinforcing ideological dogma. And that's just like The Spectator. So, again... Go to spectatorworld.com backslash special offer and the offer code LAKE. I cannot recommend it enough. Well, uh, we are pleased to have senior commentary writer Christine Rosen with us, who is the author of a must-read uh, piece from the January issue called The Real Misinformation Problem. So, Christine, thanks so much for coming on The Reeducation. Thanks, Eli. Very glad to be here. So let me start off. I mean, today is the day that we have got confirmation that Elon, Elon Musk is purchasing Twitter. I'm very interested in this response from the kind of liberal elites that you skewered in your column from January, who are, you know, in, in a great deal of despair. So maybe you can sort of start by just giving us a sort of background on like, why are they so worried that a new owner of Twitter will lead to a kind of disinformation explosion? It's a great question. You know, Musk is a real controversial figure in a lot of ways because he's hard to get a read on politically, right? He's not clearly, he's he's called libertarian a lot, but his views are sort of all over the map. So he's not predictable. And his unpredictability, which I think will be a wonderful thing for Twitter, is worrying a lot of the sort of liberal intelligentsia who see Twitter as their personal playground and who are concerned that some of the people they've chucked out of the playground for saying things that they didn't want to hear might be let back on, most notably, obviously, former President Donald Trump. So I think they're, they're, it's kind of an interesting moment for misinformation, disinformation uh, talk because First of all, most people aren't on Twitter. I do think it's really important that your listeners, many of whom themselves probably are also aren't on Twitter, understand that. I mean, in some states in the union, like fewer than 5% of the of citizens are on this. But this is something that drives a lot of the kind of elite media conversations. It certainly drives a lot of the decision-making in the current White House and the Biden administration. It's very plugged into Twitter and what, what the trends are going on there. So what Musk is perhaps poised to do is to say, you know what? Free speech is great. Let's all have at it. One of his most remarkable recent tweets was to say, I hope all of my enemies are on Twitter and fighting it out because that's what I want to see. That's not what Twitter has sort of evolved into being in the last few years. And I think that worries some people. Well, you know, you mentioned the idea that, you know, Elon Musk wants, you know, everybody to sort of duke it out, which is great. But there's always going to be moderation, especially on a huge platform like Twitter. It's the alternative to, I guess, over-regulation of speech is not a free-for-all of child pornography and, you know, Nazi hate groups, right? I mean, right. it seems to me that there's a middle ground that gets missed that's missing in, in our discourse right now. That's right. And that's actually where this whole sudden interest in misinformation and disinformation on the part of the, the Democratic Party in particular is so striking to me, because this is a group that, it, first of all, the memory holding of much of what was praised by the Democrats, particularly when 
Barack Obama ran for the White House. Remember, he was the Facebook president. He was the guy who everyone was sort of marveling at because his team was so incredible in their digital outreach and, and so successful. When people pushed back on that, when he was president, I'm thinking uh, mainly here of the writer Zainab Tufeki, who wrote a very mild-mannered op-ed, I think it was around 2010, maybe 2011, saying, you know, these platforms are great, and yes, it's nice, and people are having success on it politically, but it could also be used by bad actors to do the same thing, and that could be a negative consequence. Well, she was pilloried by the Obama team. And in particular, on the record, his digital spokesman was like, this is ridiculous. Of course, we're using this all for good. This is all for good. That wasn't that many years ago. Fast forward to last week, and you have former President Obama giving Amazing. two different speeches, one at Stanford and one in Chicago at a conference, just going on and on about how misinformation is going to undermine our country and undermine democracy. And his point, which was, we have to regulate these platforms because people are doing and saying terrible things on these platforms, the platforms that he that helped elect him to the presidency twice. So it's a real uh, head scratcher how quickly that that narrative has shifted. Well, let me ask you this. We've seen that the sort of example that the other side of this argument gives is the vaccine hesitancy. And there is some evidence that, you know, even before Donald Trump and before COVID, people who had conspiratorial views about vaccines found their own communities online and bolstered their own arguments and kind of got zanier and zanier. And, you know, there was like a measles outbreak a few years back. You remember that as a result? So is there something to the argument that if you just sort of give people too much freedom to curate their own information ecosystems, which is really what's going on, because we get we love our own echo chambers. We love confirmation, which you talk about brilliantly in your essay that that can have this effect of and I again, I'm trying to steel man the argument that this can have an effect that would have, you know, kind of real world public health consequences, for example. What no, do you absolutely. say to that? No, it's absolutely true. It's absolutely true that the weirder your vice or your paranoid conspiracy theory, the more the easier it is nowadays to find a like-minded person online and particularly on social media to not only share it with you, but to spread it to as many people as possible. That's absolutely true. That has always been with us historically. The power that an amplification that social right. media platforms give part. makes it that's new. But the solutions, I think, still need to be more old fashioned if we think about what we value as a democracy in terms of free speech and free expression. And at the public square, this old fashioned idea that, you know, we should be able to kind of hash things out and you can live peacefully with a neighbor who believes crazy things so long as he or she isn't imposing them on you or vice versa. With public health, this became a different issue, certainly with with uh, vaccination most recently. But the solution that I think is being hinted at and in some cases spoken outright by a lot of Democratic Party leaders now is much worse than the, the illness. And it's this. It's we can't let this happen. We have so many misinformed, ignorant people that don't understand things the way we do. We sophisticated, well-educated people that we can't even let them have access to this. Now, to that point, there's plenty of research that shows a lot of the fears about people believing fake news and misinformation online are overblown. Yes, people are exposed to misinformation online, but whether or not they actually believe it and it changes their yeah. mind that's less clear. So I it's don't like, think it's, it's like it's like they think every individual is an empty vessel. And if you exactly. pour in true information, then they'll say they'll believe true things. If you pour in fake information, they'll believe lies. And it's just it's such a it's such, it's such an, a, a dumb understanding of human nature. Exactly. Well, and, and there's another yeah. factor. There's a professional and I think financial interest at sure. stake here too. And that's that the professional media class that dominates, you know, major newspapers, that dominates major uh, television networks, cable networks. 
people aren't tuning into their storyline and their narrative as often as they used to, right? They have alternatives. They can seek them out online. It can be a, you, you can be a sort of random YouTube person or an influencer here or someone on social media. And they go to those people and they start to trust what they say. And some of those people are actually right about some things that the mainstream media has said are disinformation or are untrue. And later when they are proven wrong, there's no backtracking. There's no sort of mea culpa from these mainstream media outlets the mistrust that has festered is certainly there's a lot of responsibility that should be at the feet of the media itself. And they don't like the alternative messages. So there's a, there is a kind of professional and stakeholder claim here that they're trying to make on the social media platforms because they're concerned about a kind of competition in terms of narrative building. That's very interesting about sort of a competition of narrative because I keep, you know, you keep kind of hearing this idea that when the when America only had three major networks, the Walter Cronkite era of media, everything was wonderful. This country tore itself apart in the 1960s, exactly under you know with with all these gatekeepers and you know in in an, in an earlier version of mass media. I don't know if it was such a wonderful time. It wasn't a wonderful time if you were gay for a lot of that period. It wasn't a wonderful time if you you know had a so. I mean, that's another part of it that I find very interesting because usually you would expect progressives and liberals to sort of, you know, celebrate this, you know, you know, the self-actualization of all these people who were, you know, marginalized before. Right. Well, there's but there's it's become a very useful political tool. And I think they've only recently discovered this. So what you'll see in a lot of let's let's take a White House press briefing, for example. There have been several now where, you know, Jen Psaki, the White House press secretary, was asked a question right. about a fact. And I remember the one I remember was about whether or not there, the administration had evidence to suggest that the Russians were going to stage a false flag operation to justify an invasion of Ukraine. This is before the war started. Totally basic factual question, because this had been something that had been sort of said publicly by the administration. Instead of saying yes or no, or we'll get back to you, or any of the million sort of weasel words that press secretaries are kind of, you know, uh, programmed to say, she suggested that the reporter himself was asking a question based on false information, had been misled. And this is popping up more and more. When you hear a question asked of a Democratic official that they don't want to answer, you get that. You get, oh, you must be listening to disinformation. So it's so politically convenient to dodge a, a tough question that you don't want to answer by pointing to the questioner and going, you have it all wrong. You're misinformed. And there's a way in which the Democratic Party has been doing this to voters in the last few years that I think is going to come to uh, fruition in the midterm elections with their with them getting thumped in the midterm elections. But that's kind of the message, right? It's like, you know, it's a mostly peaceful riot. You, what you're seeing here is not what you're yeah. seeing. No, crime is not on the rise. No, no, no. If you live in a city, it's just your imagination. It's Fox News telling you that. People aren't stupid, but they're being treated as if they're stupid. And when they ask tough questions, they're told that they're too stupid to understand that what they're consuming in terms of information is wrong, when in fact, some of what they're seeing with their own eyes is true. Now, what's interesting, uh, and, and you get, you've gotten into this, uh, jo, jo, Joseph Bernstein has done a wonderful work and a piece for Harper's on this, that this has now become a little bit of a cottage policy industry, big disinfo. And so you have the Aspen Institute, which you talked about, the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, and most recently at the, the Atlantic and the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, where Barack Obama spoke. Um, is this becoming a little bit like the self-licking ice cream cone in the early years of the war on terror, which is that this is this new kind of thing there's a lot of foundation money behind it. There's a lot of university money behind it. And that, you know, that there's a there's a there's definitely a market for people to explain 
all kinds of social ills through the lens of disinformation. Yes, and it's an uh, incentive in many ways for people to kind of you know land on that square, so to speak. Absolutely. And actually, Jacob Bernstein's piece is wonderful. Big disinfo. Everyone yes. should read it. He kind of just gathers in all of the, the existing infrastructure now. And I was even surprised. I follow this pretty closely. And I was even surprised there were a few things in there I didn't even know about. It's really well done. And yes, I think that there, there is an infrastructure. It is largely on the left, I will say. The right doesn't have anything similar in terms of kind of the imprimatur of these institutions, you know, universities and, and important Aspen commissions and stuff. To the Aspen Commission, that one fascinated me. In fact, I had a chance. To oh, ask. this was so good. I, I, let's we <laughs> let's let's well, you get all the glory. For, yes. It's packed full of people who themselves have spread are like yes, Katie Couric, who admitted to you know suppressing information that might have been harmful to the reputation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Renee DeResta, who yes. was involved in this crazy, originally it was like, it was during the, 19, the 2017 special election in Alabama for Senate, if you remember, and she was part of something called an advisor to American Engagement Technologies, mm -hmm. which was basically creating fake online personas yes. that were, I guess, in the name of researching how Russian disinformation might work, but was in fact Russian disinformation. You know, it was so nuts. And, you know, and that was during an election. It was it was fake information. Right. Well, and, and they know, well, I, I will add. I So yeah. Will Hurd, who is a Repu former Republican congressman yes. who was on that commission, who I was surprised to see on that commission, except that he has foreign intelligence experience, yeah. former CIA officer. And so he obviously was put on there to kind of talk about a real threat that of, of disinformation from foreign adversaries trying to undermine, you know, elections or other things in, in this country, mm -hmm. important stuff. I actually heard him speak at the American Enterprise Institute today. And I, of course, being the annoying, you know, skunk at the garden party, raised my hand. And, and I asked him, I said, you know, you were on this commission uh, that produced this report. In the last few weeks, we've seen lots of Democrats, you know, talk about this, but talking about it as you know, domestic enemies. We're not talking about foreign enemies. He didn't really have, and I said, what do you think of that? What do you think that means for the future of free expression if we're starting to monitor speech at home in this way, using the kind of language that he had spoken of on the commission and, and in his work as a foreign adversary? He didn't, he didn't really, really have, have any an answer. answer. There was no real answer. I mean, it's fine. He doesn't have to answer that question. You know, it's sort of a book event and I was being annoying, but I want an answer to that question from people who think that this is just as much of a, a challenge. We hear a lot about domestic terrorism, right? We hear a lot about white supremacists and all these problems. Those are real problems in this country. But the scale of some of the stuff we're talking about here isn't limited to people on the right. There's plenty of disinformation on the right, but there's plenty of disinformation on the left. And the, on the left right now, I see more state-sponsored disinformation. Well, I don't see I it so much as left-right. I think it's there is elite disinformation and populist disinformation. That's true. That's the good distinction. And yes. the elite disinformation is often in the name of fighting disinformation. So it can yes. be maddening. But at the same time, I do think that the responsible position has to be, has to sort of recognize that there can be real world consequences. I mean, we all know the story of Pizzagate. I talked about it in my monologue. Yes. And, you know, there were people who went kind of crazy went looking at QAnon, you know, message boards and they really believed that there was a kind of pedophile ring that was secretly running the government. It was nuts. It was totally crazy. And some of those people ended up, you know, marching on the Capitol on January 6th. Mm -hmm. That's a real thing. I don't I mean, my question to you is, how do you kind of deal with that problem, which is that there are times when you can amplify instantaneously really kind of stuff that will attract a fringe and almost radicalize them. But at the same time, without getting into a situation where you're kind of creating a new class, a new nomenclatura 
that will tell us what is true and what isn't true, effectively supplanting what journalism is supposed to be. So what do you, how do you kind of balance that? Well, I I think, look, these are private companies, right? They're allowed to kick people off if if they violate the rules, et cetera, et cetera. That's fine. I have no problem with that. I've looked, I mean, if, if, you know, when they, when Twitter kicked off Trump, he said he violated the rules, fine. But lots of other people who are on Twitter currently were not kicked off and they were violating the same rules. So I think consistency is important. If you're going to have a platform where you say, we will regulate and here are the rules, you have to be consistent in enforcing them. And so far, what we've seen, particularly recently, is that when it comes to things that are labeled misinformation or disinformation, it tends to go in one direction. Exactly. You know, that's And there's an argument that people who believe the most extreme narrative about policing in America we're driven to a kind of violence as well. Yes, And yet you you could never call that stuff disinformation. You could never treat it the same way. And I think that's the nub of, of your work on this, which is that it's just, if you really are serious about trying to fight disinformation, then you have to do it in the most politically neutral way you can. And so far it has been seized as a weapon by one side of the political conflict. Definitely. And I would also, the other thing I would add is we all should, we would all benefit from having a kind of historical perspective on how sure. act, how words uh, prompt violence. So I'm, I happen to be reading, happen to be reading a biography of Abraham Lincoln, and it is astonishing how often Lincoln himself, when he was a state level official, would when he was campaigning, would jump off a stage and have a fist fight with someone. I mean, people were beating each other up all the time in politics in the 19th right. century. Not that that was a good thing, but the idea that that we don't won't always have fringes on either end of the political spectrum who are willing to to take up arms or, or you know commit horrific acts of violence in the name of their cause. We've always had that. We always will. What it is not the obligation of a you know a social media platform to prevent that. They can't prevent that. It's human nature at work, unfortunately. What they can do is have consistently applied rules because the the more pernicious thing that's going on right now is an erosion of trust in a lot of these sure. institutions. And and social media is a kind of democratic institution now in our country, for better or for worse. I'm a real curmudgeon about this stuff. However, that's what it is. And we need to think about whether people are going to be able to trust that what they're told is misinformation is or isn't. And right now, no one does. And it's very politicized. It's becoming polarized and politicized. And that's not good. Well, this is, uh, I think, a really important point, which is that ultimately politicizing the fight against misinformation and disinformation ends up squandering the public's trust in the institutions that are trying to do that. Right. But it has been sort of seized as this weapon at this point. So that is the kind of world that we're in. Well, anyway, I want to just sort of end on maybe a more hopeful note, but or maybe I don't know if it necessarily is hopeful. But at a certain point, do you think as a society we should sort of say, yes, with social media, there is a risk that unbalanced people will come to believe insane things and act on that. But that's a risk that we are willing to tolerate because the alternative would be we would no longer have kind of free discourse. Is that ultimately the, our position? I mean, I'm just sort of saying, yeah, you're, you're right. There's going to occasionally be kind of gathering online or people are going to become radicalized and that's just how it is. But that's the rough and tumble of living in an open society and a free society. Yes, I, I think actually the optimistic take on this is to say we've just been through a couple of years in particular, but culturally, there's been a trend for a decade or more uh, about risk aversion being a virtue. 
And, you know, in some sense you think, yeah, it's great. Kids should wear a bicycle. I have, I have kids. Yeah. I want them to wear a helmet when they ride their bike. You know, I didn't, I didn't wear a seatbelt. I mean, I'm a child of the seventies. We rolled around on the back of a car, <laughs> jumping around like maniacs. It was insane. I look back now, I'm like, how are we alive? So there are some things that I think culturally it's good that we embrace a, a message of limiting risk, but politically we're trying to do that and apply it in a way that becomes a kind of moral crusade on both sides. They, they yeah. pick their issue and it becomes this thing. It's like you're evil if you don't agree that this risk has to be you know, absolutely eliminated. We cannot eliminate all risk. So much of what's amazing and wonderful, and to get back to your first question about Elon Musk, what's kind of remarkable about him is that he came to this country and took enormous risks. And he's, you know, the, the reason that people admire him and the reason they're sort of fascinated by him is that he's he embodies a kind of entrepreneurial spirit and, and really a willingness to do crazy stuff and see, try to see it through. I mean, the guy's putting people in space because he's like, yeah, I want to put people in space. That's a good thing. We need to recapture a sense of that. With, uh, and, and to do that, we're going to have to tell people that tolerance for risk is important. It's an important value. And tolerance in general of your fellow human beings doesn't mean you have to agree with them. You can disagree. You can disagree angrily. You can really get into verbal battles on Twitter. That's not harm. That's not causing you harm because you could turn it off. You can also, I mean, also we have to get to, uh, get to an idea that something is not true because elites say it's true. Something Bingo. is true because you allow for the counter argument to exist and you can evaluate and continuously evaluate things. And when you're talking about the realm of politics as opposed to science, there really is no like sort of objective truth in the sense that the disinfo, the anti-disinfo industry would like us to believe. And the way that you, I mean, I always thought that the way that the best way to counter that is to make sure that if there are left-wing newspapers, there are also right-wing newspapers, and hopefully they can check each other. Yes. And that if you are, if you want to be a you know, an informed citizen, you should try to open, you know, you should try to get all as many perspectives as you can. So you can see the various perspectives. And it seems like we're missing all of that, because for some reason, we associate social media and the hypercharging amplification of any kind of information as a unique threat, when this is the same kind of arguments people had when they had the first printing press and things mm -hmm. like that. Mm -hmm. People talked about it in terms of television and things like that as well. Yes, yes, exactly. The pamphlets, the novels were considered harmful content. I mean, we, we have been here before, but the panic, the kind of moralizing panic that's setting right now concerns me. That we need to deal with. And, and, the, and or people who talk about the fairness doctrine. Well, why do we need a fairness doctrine when we have all these different social, you know, if you don't like, you know, the, the Rachel Maddow, turn on Fox News. It's fine with me. You know, mm -hmm. you, know you can get, you, you don't need it. But that's for another time. Christine, this was great. Thank you so much for your time. I know how busy you are. And I really recommend Christine's article from January on, and just read everything she writes because it's all always great. But this is a really terrific piece, the real misinformation problem from the January 2022 issue of Commentary. Thank you so much. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.